I, I want this morning to speak to you about spiritual formation. Happened. To paraphrase thing by J.I. Packer, as a fool yearns to play Hamlet, I yearn about spiritual formation. It's a challenge to me that I've been a believer all these years. The last few years I come to realize that perhaps everything I've learned and much of what I thought about spiritual formation wrong. And um, I'm going to blame you Presbyterians for that. Uh, and that's no small thing. Uh, I grew up independent Baptist. Maybe I've shared that with you. Fundamentalist. Fun, too much damn and not enough mental. And uh, they, it wasn't just that, and, and through my journey as a believer, I, I, I kept finding these people that were our spiritual leaders, and it came from a long line of those who believed that spiritual formation is a destination. Somehow you're going to get there. Some of those in my background believed that they had gotten there. Place they said that you eventually... You eventually arrive, place of certitude, place of doctrinal purity. I don't know if you're there yet, but if you are, I would say all the screw tape that doctrinal purity or the illusion of doctrinal purity makes us more religious for hell's sake. We have to be careful what we, and that's the reason I appreciate your attention to the creeds, because that's the bottom line we all sent uh, to. I've come to believe rather lately that spiritual formation is a journey. The original definition of that word journey actually meant the amount, of, the amount that you could travel in one day. And I think that speaks to the spiritual formation as a daily walk, a journey, if you will, in spiritual imperfection by people, even in the strictest sense, who are not human beings. Now, you may not appreciate showing up at church and somebody telling you that you're not a human being, but the human part is a given. It's the being part that we question. Remember the the pre-Socratarian debate between Heraclitus and Parmenides. Sure, you remember that. Heraclitus said, whatever is, is changing. He says, you can never step into the same river twice. The time you take your foot out and put it back in, the river's changed, you have changed imperceptibly, everything's changed. And Parmenides answered back to him and said, no, whatever is, is. And for that, Parmenides is famous. You thought that was stated by a president. Whatever is, is. 
But his point was, there's only one true being, and that's the Lord God. We at best are human becomings. God is. We are becoming. And hopefully day by day we're being conformed into his image. And just for the record, hanging out with a group of young Presbyterian pastors has inflicted me with the journey I'm on about spiritual formation. So it's only fair that I should give it back to you a little bit here. Because I, the way I said it to a couple of the pastors and even to your elders and leaders meeting with them is almost you've persuaded me to become a Presbyterian. Um, and that's no small thing. <laughs> I mean, when I was growing up, we were so Baptist that I used to argue with my mother about that. Finally, I said to her, Mom, what if Jesus himself stood before you and said he wasn't a Baptist? She said, I'd know it wasn't him. <laughs> my point this morning and what I want to try and impress upon you is maybe spiritual formation shouldn't even be our focus. That spiritual formation is a byproduct of something else that goes on in our lives. And for our purposes, I want to propose that spiritual formation flows out of what James Davidson Hunter in his book To Change the World calls a theology of faithful presence. Faithful presence, he says, calls believers to yield their will to God and to nurture and cultivate the world where God has placed them. He goes on to say, when the word of all flourishing, defined by the love of Christ, becomes flesh in us and in our relations with others, absence gives way to presence, and the word we speak to each other and to the world becomes authentic and trustworthy. This is the heart of a theology of faithful presence. That's what I want to submit to you this morning, that spiritual formation happens when we faithfully present ourselves to God in worship, when we faithfully present ourselves to each other in the body of Christ by acts of, of service, when we faithfully present ourselves to our world through acts of love. I think all of those flow out of our passage this morning, so let me read the first couple of verses again, and then we'll take the others as we go through the morning. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we look to you because we know that you're the God that satisfies the desire of every living thing. And we need you. Desperately, we need Christ to be formed in us that we might properly represent you in a world dying without hope. So I pray that you would capture my heart and the words of my heart, and the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, be pleasing your sight, in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Spiritual formation happens when we faithfully present ourselves to God. I purposefully asked Will to back up and read the last verses of Romans 11, because when we talk about the faithfulness of, uh, talk about faithful presence, it's God's faithful presence to us that is the basis of the motivation of our presence in the world. In fact, I'm coming to believe late in my Christian walk that the greatest gift the gospel accords to us is the gift of his presence, the gift of God's presence. John 17, 3, 1 John 5, 20, the only two places in the Bible where eternal life is defined. How do we define? This is life eternal, that we might what? Know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. It's a relationship that he has established through his death on the cross that guarantees his presence with us. So when we come to the therefore in Romans 12, it doesn't just send us back to Romans 11, it sends us back to the first 11 chapters, the Christian constitution. So we come to Romans 12 and and that great therefore, Paul says, based on everything that I've said thus far in the book of Romans, The reasonable thing for you to do is what? I'm sorry, I'm from Missouri. And when we ask questions in Missouri, people answer, the reasonable thing for you to do is... Hello? Thank you. It's not a trick. We're funny people, aren't we? We spend 70% of our time talking to ourselves. And you're saying, I don't either. He's crazy. I don't talk to myself. Then when we're asked for... Present your what? Bodies. But we're Presbyterians. What about the mind? Well, the mind is important, but that's not where he starts. It says, present your bodies. And I have to confess to you that I've been reading James K.A. Smith, and I don't know if, if you haven't, I, I would infer, encourage the first thing for you to do is go home, pull up Google or pull up YouTube and, and James K.A. Smith in uh, Imagining the Kingdom. And, and just, it's, it's an incredible process that, that he's talking about in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, has kind of put me over the edge in the importance of the body and spiritual formation. We've essentially in the church repeated, are in danger of repeating the, 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 the um, first heresy that the church had to contend with. We have a Gnostic approach to the gospel. We've forgotten the body, and the body is important. In spiritual formation, and, and James K. Smith talks about the, the, the idea of, of how our habits form us. He said, I, I, I love the order of service in the Presbyterian church because we, we need habit. Habit forms us. We need, um, uh, well, let me just go. I was going to go here. I've spent 40 years of my life working with teenagers. <laughs> Have the scars to prove it. No, I love teenagers. 
but they have parents. And, and <laughs> um, 37 years in education, and I never, I never want to hear again a mother crying in my office. But she's in seventh grade, and she's never had a C before. So we had a rule at our school that in third grade, every child gets a C. We're going we're to get it out of the way, and they can't say that. But the church has spent, and, and there's, a, there's a wonderful book called The Juvenilization of the American Church. And we've spent more money, time, and energy on this generation than energy than any generation in history. And, and, and we still see that kids are abandoning the church like the plague. If you, hear, if you, if you pay attention to the Barna polls, Barna's saying, after 20 years of worldview instruction, only about 6 to 8% of the American Christians have a distinctively Christ-centered worldview. The um, great study was done by uh, Christian Smith and his group. Um, soul-searching. They interviewed Christian teens across the United States. It's the most uh, comprehensive study done on, on the values of Christian teens ever done. And they thought when they went into that study that people were, they were going to find out that, that our young people were out there chasing after all these New Age religions and all this stuff. But they found out that that didn't happen at all. What was happening is they were embracing the faith of their parents. The problem is they were embracing it the same way, and God was to them a moralistic, therapeutic deist. A divine butler just there for their whim. It's the church as the mall, as James K.A. Smith said. But we, we keep saying that young people need to get back to church. I think in generations past, they were in church and we didn't tell them what to do, so they left. We didn't give them anything to do with the body. We didn't tell them what to do with who they were and how they were to worship God with their body and their souls. Um, it's interesting to me that one thing that teenagers hate is when adults act like teenagers. Why are you looking at your father? This, this is a prayer. Isn't it true? And, and so what have we done in the church? And this may just, maybe it's just a rant from an old guy. We spent all this money in the, in the, in the book, The Juvenilization of the Church, went back and researched all the documents that, that youth directors were leading, reading and using. And the, and the word that was the most prominent in all of those documents was the word Fun that the goal of the youth ministry was that kids would have fun. So, so they aren't interested. We've copied the consumerist practices of the world, and, and they're saying, if that's what important is important, I can get it better somewhere else. I'm not interested. But, but I'm glad to report to you, I think the tide is changing with our kids. Howe and Strauss, who have written on, have done generational studies and talking about teenagers, and, and, and the studies show they're, they're, they're more conservative, 
in a, in a number of areas, young people are better now than they have been in a long time. But what they're looking for from the church is a place of significance and even gravitas. They want to come to church and know that there's meaning in the symbols and that people are serious. In the, in the book Soul Searching, one of the fascinating studies was <clears throat> not one teenager, that, well, one teenager, a Mormon young lady, when they surveyed them, said, have you ever had a significant conversation with an adult in your church about spiritual things? And only one student in all the students they interviewed said yes to that. They said, people in our church talk to us about sporting events, they talk to us about the ball games, but we never have had significant conversations cross generations about the faith. And how in Strauss stress, and I think it bears us to think about this, that this generation before us, just entering college, is, is the largest generation in the history of the United States. And they say, if, if we don't get around them and surround them with a cadre of adults that can give them a vision for what they could be, and they rally around a negative national agenda, they'll overwhelm us. And it's time for the church to be the church. That's what we do best. More importantly, we need to, important to, 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 to open to them how important the body is in worship. For all the talking, it's good talk that I do with my friends now about Presbyterianism, I, I, I long or communion, and we're not having communion this morning, so. But, but, but one of the things that has impressed me most about Presbyterian worship is that time when we're called to respond to the word that God has given us, and we're called to respond in worship, in the worship of the table. Maybe the only thing that would be better if we came forward and kneeled. I don't know. But, but the, 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 the whole flow... And let me just wander off here. You, you, you thought I was already wandering. I'm going to wander. I, I, I know the idea of starting a Presbyterian church in Owasso, Oklahoma, is a challenge. But it's too important to be easy. And I would encourage you um, that, that it's... When it gets hard, this is no time for us to give up on our ideals. It's time for them to leave, live and breathe again from the church so that kids see us as a significant force in their lives. But I think we have to figure out, and, and, and Christian Smith, James K. Smith are doing a good job of it with how we cultivate habits for our kids and Get them, he calls their thin and thick habits, and those thin habits of, of just coming and, and learning to sit in church. You know what we're telling kids by carting them? If your kids left, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm frustrated because you know what we're telling kids? We don't think you're capable. We don't think you're capable of handling worship. We don't think you're capable of. I'll move on. But we, it's, and I'm sure it's an oversimplification, but I think we've brought into, the, brought into the Greek idea that says you can think your way into a better way of acting. 
That's not the Hebrew way, not the Bible way. The Bible way is we act our way into a better way of thinking. Because to obey is better than what? Sacrifice. And, and we have to have both. But I think there's pause to say that maybe we've overplayed the mind part of the formation, underplayed the body part. We fancy that we are these thinking animals and our decisions are rational, intentional, tidy little things. That's not altogether true. In fact, the, the new work in neurosciences, if you, if you want a fascinating book, and, and don't tell anybody I told you to read this, but it's called The Social Animal by David Brooks. Fascinating. You know what we're finding out in neuroscience? That while you're sitting here for the last minute, you've taken in millions of pieces of information. And the body can only act on about 40 of those pieces at any given time. So we think we're making these really tidy, rational decisions when in essence, our decisions are made by that plethora of other things going on in, into that decision. And the mind consciously takes in a small portion of that. 50% of the decisions of heads of Fortune 500 companies are wrong. I don't want to leave here without encouraging you that things as simple as the order of service invite the mind-body connection and remind us that Scripture is script and that we have a part to play, that we are participants in the Scripture. The second thing is we... Spiritual formation happens when we faithfully present ourselves to the church in acts of service. Verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each man a measure of faith. Please hear this. For as, for as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So being many are one body, we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it to, to our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Spiritual formation happens when we submit our body to the body of Christ. We can't miss this. This body is the context that God has given us for spiritual formation. You need each other. We're often like porcupine on a cold morning. We, we needle each other. But, but we, we, the body must function if we're going to present to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ in, all its, in its entirety.
the functioning body of Christ is essential. I'm an old Marine. The emphasis on the old. And I, I never wanted one of my kids to grow up. We have two boys and a girl. I never wanted one of them to join the Marine Corps. I didn't want the two boys to join because what the Marine Corps would do to them. And I didn't want our daughter to join because what she might do to the Marine Corps. But, but I have a son. And, and, and I'd like you to write his name down. His name is Alex. And he's right now... In, at the airport in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because he works for the State Department. After he got out of the Marine Corps, he, he was Marine Corps sniper and earned a lot of civilian jobs that match up with that job set. Maybe Chicago and the Mafia would, would be one. But he was hired back by the federal government, and he goes out now on these journeys two months at a time, and it's hard, and it's hard for his wife and our grandson. It's hard for us. So I, I'll leave here and face a weeping mother, a weeping wife, and, a, and his weeping mother. And I, and I ask him, why do you keep doing that? And so Friday night he got tired of my asking, and he turned on a TED Talk by a guy named Sebastian Junger. And, and, and the TED Talk was, why do young men go to war. You know why they go to war? It doesn't have anything to do with war. They go to war because of the brotherhood that is established among them as they're in war. They hate war. But they keep going back. Even young men going AWOL from the hospital in order to get back with their unit. And they go there because there's a brotherhood which Stephen Turner calls communitas. There's this bond of community that, that, that they long for when they don't have it. That's what God has called us to as a church, to that type of communitas. I remember the day my son walked across the parade deck when he graduated from Marine Corps boot camp. And because we had been through similar, it's because we had suffered together when we met on the parade deck and embraced it was, I mean, it was electric. And that's what the body's supposed to give us. We do and don't do what we do in order to honor Christ, but we do and don't do what we do in order to strengthen the body because there is within the body of Christ properly demonstrated a communitas that forms us. The body of Christ is absolutely vital. And the great picture for us is the Trinity. What do we have in the Trinity? We have unity and diversity and community in the Trinity. And in the church, we have unity and diversity and community. And, and that's all swept up into John 17's dance of God, if you've read Tim Keller's The Reason for God. And that's the church. That's the dance that we involve ourselves in. That's the dance that's attractive to the world out there wondering about us. We want to faithfully present ourselves to the Lord in worship. We want to faithfully present ourselves to the church in service. And we want to faithfully present ourselves to the world in acts of love. 
I won't take the time to read the whole passage, but if you would just go sometime this week, today, a good Sabbath meditation would be to look at verses 9 through 21 and see how, what attributes there that as we focus on them, they form us. Be kindly affection one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. As we practice the virtues, as we, as we demonstrate love expressed, it forms us. And it's attractive to our world. You have the opportunity someday to pick up Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity. He gives this account recorded by the pagan historian. In 165 AD, a huge plague swept through Rome, killing about one-fourth of the population. And this secular historian wrote this, the doctors were quite incapable to treat to treat the disease equally useless were the prayers in the temple. People became afraid to visit the people, the people, and as a result, thousands of people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many inhabitants who perished because of lack of attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other. Half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets. The, cast, the catastrophe became so great that we, we became indifferent to every rule of morality. Many pushed sufferers away, sufferers away, even their dearest, throwing them into the road because they were afraid they, they were dead and hoping to avert the contagion. As for the gods, they seemed not to matter. When one saw the good and the bad dying in it indiscriminately. But one Dionysius gives this account. Most Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And many departed their, this life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors, and they cheerfully accepted the pain. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, and a number of the elders too. Many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their neighbor's stead. Stark goes on to record in another place how one of the emperors was perplexed. He saw all the pagan priests departing the city and he saw the Christians there taking care, loving their brothers, loving their neighbors. One historian in somewhat understated fashion remarked, the pagans who survived had greatly increased odds of conversion to Christianity. I want to pay, play a three-minute video in, in conclusion, and, and then I'll come back and pray with you. If we could uh, show that. And I want you to just attend to this lady's thoughts. I met such a person on Scotland's Outer Hebrides. Her name was Marion Campbell, and she was the finest weaver in all of Scotland. She was a national treasure. She'd been sighted by the Queen, and she lived in the tiny town of Plokropool. And I had to photograph her, and I went to her house. I knocked on the door. She came out, lovely woman. And, and she said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm from National Geographic, and I want to photograph you. And she said, wait, 
My brother is very sick upstairs. He may be dying, and I'm taking care of him. I, I felt like a complete idiot, you know. I mean, why? I began to apologize. I backed off, and, and she stopped me, and she said, wait, wait, give me an hour, and I'll be ready. And she closed the door. And I wandered around the village thinking of the extraordinary presence of this woman. Why? Why, when her brother was dying, would she give me time? And then I heard the hand shuttle being thrown across her loom, and I found her in her weaving shed, lit only by the light of the window. And she showed me the yarn that she'd spun by hand. And she told me how she'd gone into the fields and scraped the lichens off the rock to make her dyes. And I, I was still nervous and embarrassed. I took a few quick photographs, and I said, thank you, thank you, fine, I got it. And I started to leave, and again she stopped me. And she took me into her house, and she'd put out biscuits, and she'd made tea, and she wouldn't eat till I had eaten. And she invited me into her living room, and she stoked the peat fire, and we sat together. And she talked quietly and simply, and I, I kept thinking I was in the presence of a great sage, of, and I, I was waiting for some great gift of wisdom. And finally I said, what do you think about when you weave? And she said, I wonder if I'll run out of thread. It wasn't exactly what I thought I'd hear, you know. And, and she must have seen my discomfort because she smiled at me and she cocked her head and she said, when I weave, I weave. And in my own mind I heard, when I weave, I weave. When I photograph, I photograph. When I serve, I serve. When I celebrate, I celebrate. There's no use walking anywhere to preach unless you're walking as you're preaching. And that evening, through her actions and her words, Marion Campbell showed me what it might be like to soar. She was who she was, with discipline, with grace, with total lack of ego. She was a thermal rider, not just the best in the world, but the best for the world. Would you bow your heads, please? I just have a question and would like for you to finish the sentence. When I what, I what? When I worship, I worship. When I serve, I serve. When I love, I love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, even moved into the neighborhood, came to live with us. Now that your body, Lord Jesus, is in heaven, I pray that you would impress upon your body, your church on earth, properly represent you to properly represent your word, to love as you've loved, and to move into our world and provide not just the words of the gospel, but the music of the gospel that people will hear, come to know Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.